some of you I know, uh, when we moved to Delhi in uh, September 1972, I think, uh, I came alone because Esther was expecting our second child, so she was at her home in Sagar. And um, um, I started worshipping at Constantia Hall, Murray Carter, early years of uh, Delhi Bible Fellowship until 1980, uh, when I was transferred out of uh, Delhi to Shillong. We were part of it, and even after that, I've been coming to Delhi off and on. Uh, nice to be here. Of course, we cannot um, meet or shake hands. Everything has to be done electronically, uh, including your cup of tea. Uh, so we shall now look at this particular parable in a somewhat different way. A parable is supposed to teach only one lesson or at the most two. One of the early interpreters of this parable was Augustine of Hippo, the fourth century Christian leader. He had an exotic uh, interpretation. He said that uh, this man should not have been going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem is a holy city. Jericho is a sinful city. And as, sure enough, he fell among robbers. And, um, and, and you know, the... Um, he did not uh, worry too much about the priest and the Levite, uh, but he said that Samaritan was Jesus, and the oil that he pours into his wounds is the Holy Spirit. And the two coins that he gave to the innkeeper are the Old and the New Testaments. So that's an exotic uh, interpretation. I'm not going to go that way, because that is not how uh, parables are meant to be interpreted. I want to speak on a topic which uh, you may not have been very familiar with, but the paragraph that um, uh, was read to us begins with this uh, person who wants to test Jesus. Now, in the English language, the word test, test is for exams. Test can be uh, your promotion. Test can also be due to circumstances, like, for example, what we are uh, going through. COVID-19 is testing us, testing our faith, testing our patience. Uh, we, our leaders do not really know whether to lift the lockdown or to keep the lockdown. If they keep the lockdown uh, very long, then we will become financially bankrupt as countries. So it's a very difficult call to make. And so that is a kind of a test. But then we also know about temptation in English, temptation always, almost always means temptation to moral evil. Now, in the Greek language, there is only one word for both test and attempt. And that is the word which is used here, obviously. This is actually to get uh, Jesus to get into a problem in what he says. He was not the first lawyer. Uh, throughout his ministry of three and a half years, Jesus always faced people who tried to find fault with his words. And so he asked a very simple question. And in fact, Brother Anil asked me whether I have any PowerPoint to make. The reason why I have not made any PowerPoints is because I want to read the scripture as a narrative. And I think we must learn to lead, read the um, scriptures narratively before we start drawing principles. And we notice that he's asking what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asks a double question. Uh, when you find the time, I want you to do a study of Jesus' questions. 
Did you know that Jesus asked more than 150 questions in the Gospels? We are only interested in the answers, but we are not concentrating on the questions. You know, questions are very important. And this is exactly how I learned uh, to cut my teeth on apologetics. When I ask my Hindu friend, what do you believe? I'm actually guiding the conversation, but I'm also showing respect as I listen to what he or she has to say. And so asking questions is something very important. James tells us that we should uh, be slow to speak and quick to listen. And one way to get to listen to people is by asking them questions. So Jesus is asking him a question. I want to tell you a, something slightly humorous because asking questions was a, a Jewish rabbi's way of teaching. A Jewish rabbi always answered a question with a question. So some press reporters were absolutely irritated with him. So um, they asked him, why do you answer a question only with a question? And he said, why not? So there, there ended the conversation. Uh, now look at Jesus' question. There's two parts. Both are important. He said, what is written in the law? How do you read it? What is written in the law? How do you read it? What is written in the law is what is objective. How we read it is subjective. And I want to tell you that in every uh, act of knowledge, there is both an objective and the subjective part. I mean, there's something outside of you. There's a huge black elephant standing in front of you, but your eyes are the ones which see that elephant. So you have to perceive that. There is no uninterrupted, uninterpreted fact. One of the reasons why Jesus, after his resurrection, did not appear to Pontius Pilate or Annas or Caiaphas. He didn't go to them, wave his hands and say, hello, you got me crucified the day before yesterday, I've come here. Because they would always have found a, a kind of an explanation. All facts are interpreted facts. I've heard a humorous story of three people watching a ship sink. The humanist said, what a loss of life. The materialist said, what a loss of property. The physicist said, how beautifully the law of gravity works. So it's the same fact interpreted in three different ways. And that is a very interesting point. In fact, if you're interested, uh, three recent graduates of Union Biblical Seminary in Pune here, they have uh, got hold of uh, speakers like R.C. Sproul Jr. and others, and they have started what is called Dauntless Pulpit. You can Google it on YouTube when you find some time. And they got um, three parts uh, sermon um, recorded from me, uh, which is how do you read your Bible? I didn't quite pick it up from here, but I arrived it from uh, in different ways because what the Bible says can be interpreted in our own ways. Now, this is pretty dangerous territory. Just in case some of you who know me well over the years think that LT is now moving into some kind of a heretical stage during the last years of his life, uh, please be assured, because the Holy Spirit who interpreted the scripture is the same one who indwells us and helps us to understand the scripture, which is why the alignment is not much off the track, except people who come out with some real uh, funny teachings. In fact, I heard in Tamil Nadu, there is a group now talking about immortality now. That means Christians should not die now, and only then Christ will come again. What is it based on? 
from John chapter 11, where Jesus says to Martha at Lazarus' grave, he who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, some such thing. Now, if you can take any verse and prove anything in scripture, which is why we have a whole book and we have the spirit of God uh, speaking to us, interpreting for us. In fact, I was listening to Professor John Walton, who teaches Old Testament at Wheaton. He put it very beautifully. He said, the Bible was written for us, but not to us. The Bible was written for us and not to us because if, when we start reading the Bible first as if it is written to me, rather than it is written for me, but to a different group of people, we tend to make less mistakes. I have often advised people, I do this in this three-part series, you read the Old Testament first as a Jew, Jewess, before you read it as a 21st century Indian Christian. You read the New Testament as a first century Jewish Christian first. Then you read it as a 21st century Indian Christian. So you, Jesus, double question here. What is written? How do you read it? Now, what does is, what is this guy say? He simply quotes from Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. And of course, Jesus wants to cut short the conversation. Now, I am making this point very carefully here because what I'm going to tell you is... Uh, Jesus knows that he's in the process of being trapped. And so he wants to finish, go uh, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, uh, wanting to prove himself very smart, uh, asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? After that, Jesus brings this far-fetched story uh, of a man uh, traveling from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho. But you know what? I'm, I'm going to come back to the parable at the end. I'm going to give you a test. Look at the question Jesus asks after he tells them the, uh, tells him the parable. He says, which of the three was neighbor to the one who fell among the robbers? What was his question? Who is my neighbor? What is Jesus' question to him? Which of the three was a neighbor to one who fell among the robbers? I tell you, the difference between these two questions is actually the difference between hell and heaven. Let me explain. When I go around looking for neighbors to help, I am the subject. The neighbor is the object whom I want to help. So in one sense, I'm not in a far-fetched sense at all. I am the one who is in control. And the ones whom I'm helping are indirectly being controlled by me. And sometimes that's one of the reasons why, uh, even when we are faced with many beggars on the streets of India, we have to even ask God for guidance. Uh, which uh, beggar should I give money to and which beggar I should not give money to. I mean, it's not an easy thing to say. But look at the, uh, his question, the lawyer's question to Jesus. Who is my neighbor? Look at Jesus' brilliant question to the lawyer. Which of the three was neighbor to the one who fell among the robbers? And I want to tell you that the whole human problem is a desire for control. In fact, the way this conversation begins, 
the lawyer wants to test Jesus. Jewish leaders wanted to test Jesus, wanted them to be in control. And this back of beyond Jewish rabbi who came from the northeastern suburbs of uh, Palestine coming and creating a stir in Jerusalem. Oh, that was too much for them to take. Which is why they are saying we must somehow put an end to him very often, um, catch him in his words. And even when uh, Jesus asked a question and uh, Jesus, I mean, and the lawyer answered it, and Jesus said, you go and you shall have eternal life. He would stop there. And when he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? He did not realize that he was actually setting a trap for himself. That he wanted to be in control. Now let's look at a verse that um, I've given three passages of scripture to Anil. To put them up one after another as I mentioned them. The first one is Genesis 3 verse 16. Particularly verse B. And this is of course Mother's Day. Uh, this verse is not to cast aspersions on mothers. Uh, the first part of the verse is quite uh, clear. To the woman, he said, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Understood? You can even say that the woman's relationship to nature was broken because they had rebelled against God. And in the next verse, we say that the man's relationship to nature is broken. He would find workers toil. But I want you to look at the second part of the verse. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Uh, if you'd ask any wife about uh, that part of the verse, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing or a mixture, what would be your honest answer? It looks like a mixture, isn't it? Desire for the husband is really not wrong at all. It's something with which God has created us. But that word desire is a very slimy word. Um, I don't know whether Anil has got the next one. No, it's not. Ah, yeah, you got it. Uh, let's go to Genesis 4, verse 7. Uh, again, I want to read the last line. This is God speaking to Cain before he murders Abel. Sin desires to have you, but you must rule over it. You know, this word, Tashuka in the Hebrew, occurs only three times. The third time, it's a positive meaning. That is in Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 10, if you want to look at it later. But this desire is a manipulative desire. Coming back to Genesis 3, uh, you know what God is telling um, Eve, if he's using 21st century English, he's going to tell her, you will use your feminine charm to control and manipulate your husband. And the dumb macho man will not know how to respond except by dominating you. In other words, it's control from both sides, control from the vulnerability of the wife, controlled from the physical strength of the man. And any one of you having small children, four years, five years, they know how to manipulate one parent against the other. They have not been to school yet, but manipulation is in our genes. And that manipulation can even come out in the good act of helping others. I'm so happy, Anil, that you read from Psalm 112. And that's amazing scattering uh, the goods to the poor, which means you have no agenda behind this giving, except to genuinely help them. Because you can help others with a secret agenda behind it. So you find that control is part of manipulation. 
Now, I want to give you one more dimension of the cross that we do not often think about. I'm going to make this statement twice so that you don't get, it, get me wrong. The cross is where God chooses to lose control over his creation and allow his creatures to crucify his son. God chooses to lose control over his creation and allow his creatures to crucify his son. Our rebellion against God was so deep and so deeply entrenched that the only way God could get over it is for himself, in whose image he made us, who's sovereign over all of creation, even in this pandemic. But he chooses to lose control over his creation and allow his creatures to crucify his son. But do you see Satan's um, attitude to the cross? I did not give uh, those verses to Anil, but you can look them up. Look them up in Matthew 16, shortly after Peter had made that great confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus begins to share his future, that he's going to suffer. That is something to be noted. Jesus never shared about his sufferings till his disciples were sure of his identity, who he was. At the moment Peter makes his great confession on behalf of all the disciples, he begins to tell them that he's going to suffer. What does Jesus do? He takes the disciples aside. No, sorry. What does Peter do? He takes Jesus aside and he says to him, this shall not be so. How does Jesus rebuke Peter in a very uncharacteristic way? He says, get behind me, Satan. I want you to begin to see something of Satan here. Satan is the master controller. Take all cases of uh, demon position in the Bible, demon positions that you may have come across. Take cases of addiction. They are all matters of total control. But I want to tell you that because we humans are made in the image of God, even Satan cannot totally control a human personality. What we read uh, in the Gospels and even see sometimes in um, our experience where people with the genuine gift of casting out demons, you find that people who are possessed actually come to places where they can find deliverance. In the small iota of freedom that still remains under their control, they find their way to the place where they can find freedom. Satan is a master controller. So he, through Peter, is trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross. But what does he do? Ultimately, he enters Judas, uh, sorry, uh, through Peter, he's trying to Jesus keep Jesus from going to the cross. But ultimately, in John chapter 13, verse 2, he enters Judas Iscariot and sends him to the cross. Please take a note of this. Satan is confused about the cross. It's a kind of a catch-22 for Satan. He does not know whether to send Jesus to the cross and finish him off once and for all, or to keep Jesus from going to the cross. The insistence with which Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem disturbs Satan. He says there is something in this cross. I must somehow keep him from going to the cross. I hope uh, now the, his, Jesus' terms of discipleship 
in uh, Luke 14, for example, uh, where he says in verse 27, he who takes up his cross and follows me, he who does not take up his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi uh, took all those statements from verse 26 to 23 as asceticism. That is giving up for its own sake. He conveniently took out Jesus. Follow me. You cannot truly win victories over Satan till you learn to carry your cross, till you learn to give up control, and so start behaving really like the Good Samaritan. You know, the reason why the priest and the Levite passed by uh, the wounded uh, business guy uh, could be many. Now, in our country, of course, when there's an accident, people try to avoid the site of the accident because you get caught up into a police case, then you'll have to turn up in the post office, in the police station, and go on recording your uh, testimony ad infinitum uh, till you become so sick. I do not know whether that was the case, but they did not want to subject themselves. I wanted to look at this whole idea of. Uh, the lawyer's question to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus' question to the lawyer, which of the three was a neighbor, shows that true uh, attitude of the cross is one you become vulnerable, you become available. You are not looking for a person whom you want to help, but you become available to anyone who is in need. And that puts the whole parable on its right side up, if I may say that. Because this is not about, it could be all those other reasons, the priest and the Levite, then this was a Samaritan, a low caste guy, we Indians can understand this parable better than anybody else. And the priest and the Levite were dedicated for, for religious duties and they cannot uh, kind of pollute themselves by helping this. Um, the Samaritan. But I think the crux of the parable is in the way Jesus stands the question of the lawyer on its feet, on its feet, not on its head, because the right question to ask is which of the three was truly a neighbor? Which of the three became available? Which of the three became vulnerable? Which of the three is going to help? And like uh, you took offerings for the COVID relief fund and so on. It's good to see that so many of our churches all over the country are helping in big, big and small ways to come to the help of people. And those of us who are constantly watching migrant laborers walk, walking hundreds of kilometers to their homes, some of them dying on the way must be wrenching your heart. Now, I want you to be moved by some of these pictures because I want you to notice that it is out of a position of vulnerability that we can truly help one another. That's exactly what Jesus was when he hung on the cross, which is why the, on the cross is where Satan defeats that master controllers. Uh, Jesus defeats the master controller, Satan, because he is the one who operates completely by control, whereas the Holy Spirit is the one who um, operates completely by freedom. He leads from the front. And I do want to tell you that that is the picture of a Palestinian shepherd 
when we read shepherd psalms as Indian Christians, uh, we can get the wrong picture because the Indian shepherd drives the sheep from behind. But that's not the uh, sign of the Palestinian shepherd. In fact, when we were in Singapore, one of my Singaporean Chinese friends uh, went to Palestine and came back and uh, gave us this quite astonishing story. He met 10 Palestinian shepherds, Muslims, very poor, each had 10 sheep. They couldn't afford a place for their sheep of their own, so they joined together and rented a pen where they could pay, put their uh, 40 sheep. And every morning, each of the shepherds came and called out his sheep by name. And his friend told me that I was transported 2,000 years uh, ago to, uh, to John chapter 10. That's what Jesus is. He does not drive us from behind. He calls us from the front. And he asks us to be the same uh, in order that we may become vulnerable. We may become available in order, whatever way during this pandemic. Yeah. Uh, we, when we look at the healthcare workers, how they are being treated in our own country. Dr. Simon Hercules, a uh, Catholic medical doctor, did a lot. That hospital in Chennai uh, could not even get an honorable burial in the Catholic cemetery. And his fellow doctor had to uh, dig his grave with his bare hands and with a shovel and bury him in a shallow grave. Because we could not uh, dig a deep enough grave. I want to tell you that these are the days when Christians begin to be seen for their vulnerability. If you can lay your hand on this book, The Rise of Christianity by Ronald Stark. Ronald Stark, Princeton sociologist, wrote this book as an academic uh, research paper. Eventually became a Christian. And he devotes one entire chapter in this book. As one of the reasons why Christianity grew fast is when a plague hit a country, hit a town, because the smaller towns of the Roman Empire were absolutely filthy. Sewage would be flowing on the streets. But rich people along with their slaves will leave that town. But Christians will stay and will minister to the sick. Some of them will become sick and die. Like the first doctor, the Chinese doctor, who identified this virus in Wuhan. He was a Christian too. And I want to tell you that these are the days when we have to learn the lesson of vulnerability, which is why when we Christians use the word power, we have to use it very carefully because power corrupts absolute power can corrupt absolutely. But it is only when under the shadow of the cross we begin to exercise the power of God, the Holy Spirit, in our prayer, in our devotion, in our reading of scripture, even in our applying promises to ourselves that we are not seen to be controlling God, but we become available to God. God bless you. Such a great privilege to be with you this morning. Amen.